The scripture today is from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in the basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Ben. Morning, Redemption. How are you? So, Maria, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate you being here today. Uh, you, you can always just move back here, you and Aaron. That's okay with us. We've been praying that we have an agenda for your life, so it's okay. Hey, one other thing. I know this is very awkward. Just stop. That last song was awesome. I've never heard it before. Is that one of yours? No? Okay. All right. But it's a wonderful song. We should do that more. Talk to Cody, will you? Let him. Okay. All right. Thank you. Great to have you here. And by the way, the guy that read is Maria's brother-in-law. So we got a little bear family reunion going up here. So it's kind of cool. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, I want to mention one other thing before we get started. By the way, you can be turning to Acts chapter 9. Um, uh, we've noticed since the beginning of the year that we, this church has always had new people showing up, and it's one of the reasons why we plan a lot of churches is because we do have new people showing up and we tend to grow. Um, we've planted three, three churches in the last four years. Um, but one of the things that we're starting to get concerned about is since the first year, we've had a ton of new people showing up, and, and we're concerned about... Uh, how to properly be able to get them information that they're looking for on a new church and uh, also to be able to get them connected. Because I know all of those things are very difficult. When you're walking into a brand new church, you don't quite understand, and, it, and, I, and I know it's hard. And so um, Tyler James in particular, along with the rest of the staff, has put together what we think will be something that's very helpful. So we're going to start having on the first Sunday of every month, but also today, we're going to start it today, and then every first Sunday of the month after this, we're going to have what's called Orientation Sunday. And so after each service, if you just come up here to the front, Tyler will be up here, and he will uh, walk you around the campus to sort of give you an idea of what's going on on the campus and, and what all is here and what all is available. And he's available to answer your questions as well. Take about 15 minutes or so. Uh, there's no sign-ups. You don't have to give them your name. You can give them a fake name if you want. Uh, you don't have to commit to anything. We don't do the blood oath at that time. None of that stuff takes place uh, during that time. But then, after that, 
Uh, on the second, third, and fourth Sundays of each month, what we're going to do is we're going to have our Start Here class. It'll be about 45 minutes each of those Sundays uh, where we're going to tell you a little bit more about Redemption Church, go in a little bit deeper, not only about Redemption Arcadia, but also about what we call Big R Redemption, one church with 10 congregations, and how all of that works, but also, again, give you lots of opportunity to be able to ask questions. It's not a membership class, it's just something that gets you a little bit more involved in the church, but also one of the things that I know from past experience is that if you do that with a bunch of other new people, you begin to form community with those new people as well, and so we're hoping that that will happen as well. And so that'll be the second, third, and fourth uh, Sunday. We're going to start that all in May, except today we are going to have an orientation time. If you just want to spend another uh, 15 minutes here, kind of getting the lay of the land here, you can come up here uh, and do that, okay? Good to go? All right. And Tyler will tell me later if I missed anything or forgot anything on those uh, announcements. But we're glad to be able to do that. So uh, turn to Acts chapter 9. Like I said, we will also, at the end of this message, we will be in Hebrews chapter 10. So you may want to mark your place uh, there. Last week on Easter Sunday, as the Holy Spirit would have it and guide Luke, the guy that puts together our preaching schedule primarily, uh, we have the story of Saul being converted, probably the most unlikely conversion in the history of the world. Here's a guy who was going out killing Christians, and he is knocked off of his ride by the resurrected Jesus, and, and he is converted. He's, and I know, it's, it's, it seems very harsh. He's knocked down in grace. He's knocked down. He's blinded, but he is converted. He comes face to face with the risen Christ. And Easter is all about the resurrection and the fact that he is alive today and still working today and as proven in, in the life of, of Saul. Saul eventually becomes the Apostle Paul. So if I use those names interchangeably at this time, I apologize for that. Eventually, after chapter 13, he's going to be just Paul. But remember, it's the same uh, person. So we see this conversion these verses that we look at today, these 11 or so verses that we look at today, uh, is what happens immediately after his conversion. And here's the big idea. And the big idea is a little bit complicated. I'm sorry about that, but it's, but it's all relevant. Everyone needs an advocate. Everyone needs a disciple. Everyone needs to be an advocate, and everyone needs to be discipled. That's one of the major themes that we're going to see in this and what I'm really going to end up talking about uh, primarily at the end of this message. So what I want to do is take us through this passage, uh, three parts at a time, maybe four parts at a time, and then I'm going I'm to give you these, uh, these things to consider at the end that we should be thinking about this week. So starting with uh, verses 19b through 22, for some days he, Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here to Damascus for the purpose of bringing Christians, people of the way, bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So, verse 20 Luke does not use the word immediately uh, uh, very much. If you read the gospel of, of Mark, Mark uses the word immediately or just then or right away. It can be interpreted any different way. 
He uses it maybe 45 times in his gospel. Luke doesn't, in, in God, the gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, which Luke writes, he doesn't use this word nearly as much. So when he use it, uses it, it's significant. In other words, that there was no lag time between when Saul was converted and he went to work proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming who Jesus is. And, and we need to remember the thing about Saul, and this causes some, some problems. He's the guy who was notorious for persecuting people who follow Jesus, and just recently. They know all about him doing this. And so this has to be causing consternation and confusion in every camp, in every possible religious camp. Nobody knows what's going on uh, with Saul. And so we'll get to some of that uh, in just a minute. But look at 22 again. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now we need to understand, Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit at this time. He's very learned in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. Uh, and so as, as somebody who's filled with the Spirit, he should be able to just walk in and, and allow the Spirit to guide him as he talks to these people about Jesus. But there is also a sense in which good argumentation, well thought through argumentation, is at times very, very helpful, especially in this context. The, the professional religious Jews were pretty well known for hanging around all day and, and discussing the finer points of their law. I mean, delving into things that, quite frankly, wouldn't make much difference in, in anybody's life, but they wanted to debate these finer points of the law, and they would get very narrow and specific, and they'd just go back and forth all day long, all day long. It, uh, my friend Tom says it's like in the 60s when we'd sit around and smoke cigarettes and, and ask, what is reality? And we'd have these exchanges and stuff, you know? And it, I'm glad you remember those days, too. Yeah, so um, <laughs> the millennials are going, what? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Fine, look it up on the internet. Anyway, uh, so that, that's, what's, that's what's going on. But at times, being filled with the Holy Spirit will mean that your argumentation is also going to be strong, that you're going to be able to have a logical way of presenting the gospel to somebody. The gospel really is logical. I know there are some things that seem fantastic, the resurrection of a dead guy and the miracles and all that stuff, but it is also very logical when you take the Bible from beginning to end. And the Holy Spirit can be involved in that too. I will tell you, this is something that kind of frustrates me a little bit as a pastor. Occasionally I'll go to a church, and this has happened to me more than one time. I'll go to a church on a Sunday that I'm not here, and, and the pastor will get up and he'll say, well, I didn't have any time to prepare my sermon this morning, so this morning I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit guide me. And that, I, here's an old 60s saying, that's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. It just makes me go like this. Because implied in that is that there, the Holy Spirit is not involved in your study and in your preparation. That we go and we study and we prepare, but we never invite the Holy Spirit into that. He's only invited when we begin to open our mouth, and that's just not true. When I study and prepare, as most pastors that I know, we are prayerfully inviting the Holy Spirit into that preparation. We don't just ask him to show up on Sunday morning and say, fix this, okay? He's there the whole time. And so there's some tension here for us who are followers of, of Christ. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, but we still have work that we are called to do as well. Jesus did tell his disciples, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will guide you. But they're also thinking in advance about what's going on. So 
Paul is going in and he's arguing with these guys. And it's interesting that as he does, he increased in strength. And as he did that, he confounded the Jews even more. That word confounded also could mean confused. So he's just confusing these guys with the fact that he used to persecute Christians. And now he's saying that the Christians are the ones with, with the truth. And of course, that leads to these other Jews wanting to kill him. So that might bring up a good point as to how Luke uses this little term or idiom, the Jews, okay? Because it, it sounds a little bit pejorative, and he doesn't mean it pejorative at all. There were Jews who ended up believing in Jesus. Yes, that's true. Not all the Jews were opposing Paul. There was a small number of them that would come to Christ. But for the larger group that opposed Paul and opposed Jesus... Uh, these were the Jews that Luke is generally talking about when he uses that term. He's talking about those who opposed Paul and who would not follow Jesus as, um, as the Messiah. And so that discussion then leads into maybe talking a little bit about the pattern that Saul used to evangelize primarily the Gentiles along with some Jews. Okay, so Saul becomes Paul. And, and he had a, a pattern that is repeated several times, as we're going to see throughout the book of Acts. We'll bring this up again. But there's a pattern that he would use in order to do his ministry. He would enter a town, and he would find out where the synagogue is, where the Jews worshipped. And he would go first to the synagogue in order to proclaim Jesus, because the synagogue is where all the non-Jewish, the Gentile, God-fearers were. And, and so he figured he'd he'd have a much easier time talking to a large group of God-fearers who are Gentiles rather than just one at a time. So he'd go into the synagogue and he would proclaim Jesus while he was in the synagogue and many of these God-fearing Gentiles would, would hear him. Now, what's a God-fearer? We talked a little bit about it two weeks ago when we told the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. He was not a Jew. He would be considered a Gentile, somebody who's not a Jew, but he was a God-fearer. He went all the way from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem so that he could worship in the temple Yahweh. So a God-fearer is, is a term that's used quite often. It's, it's a person in the Bible who's not uh, Jewish, not ethnically Jewish, non-Jewish, but who loves and worships Yahweh, the God of the Jews, who observed the law and would follow the traditions of Moses. And certainly in the midst of this, there were some Jews who would come and follow Jesus as a result of Paul's uh, preaching. But ultimately what would happen is the Gentiles especially would start gathering around Paul and they'd be saying, well, tell us a little bit more, tell us a little bit more. And so the uh, the Jewish leaders of these synagogues in all these different cities would eventually get very angry with, with Saul, Paul, and they would kick him out. They'd say, you can't be here anymore and take all of those other followers of Jesus with you. And so then they would go and they would start these house churches. These house churches were considerably more accessible to the Gentiles because you didn't have all of these high bar restrictions of the synagogue or the temple that were placed on Gentiles in people's houses. And so some Gentiles would start house churches, some of the Jews would start house churches, but that would be the pattern of Saul. He'd go to the synagogue first and then he would start these churches uh, with Jews and Gentiles, but primarily uh, Gentiles. And it was more accessible to the Gentiles because grace reigned in these house churches. It wasn't so much about the law and the rules. It was about the grace of God through Jesus Christ crucified and being risen uh, to new life. So then you look at what, happened in what happens in 23 through 25. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. 
but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Isn't that interesting, the juxtaposition there? Saul was killing Christians, and now they're seeking to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Look at verse 23. It's a fact. Enemies of the gospel throughout history have found, essentially, that they cannot defeat the gospel in a free and open debate. As, as I said, there is a lot of logic to the gospel uh, in, in addition to the supernatural characteristics of the gospel. And so what people do, and this has happened now for millennia, is they often result to falsehoods about the gospel and about Jesus, to force, to government suppression, and in some cases, murder. That's just a fact, and it's been happening all over the world for thousands of years. And notice that Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion, evokes two responses. The Christians don't want to go near Saul because they believe that this is some sort of a ruse by Paul so that he can get close to them and bind them up and take them back to prison and maybe execute them. It's like a Trojan horse kind of a thing. So they don't want to go near him. And now the Jews, the professional religious Jews, they don't want to go near him either. In fact, the only reason they want to go near him is so that they can kill him. So now... So Paul's kind of a, a man without a nation in a sense now, but he's, he's, he's doing the work of the gospel, and, and these are the responses that he's getting. And so finally, the Holy Spirit reveals this plot that the Jews want to kill him. They're going to they're gonna find him, and they're going to kill him one way or another. They put guards at the gate to the city. Uh, the ancient city of Damascus, like many of these other cities, had a wall that surrounded the city for defensive purposes. You could only enter the, uh, the city through uh, the gate, the main gate of the city. So they had guards at the gate, and, and, and they were watching for Saul to come and go. So what they did was the disciples took him, and they lowered him in a hole in the wall around the city out of a basket. What I've read about these, these historical walls around these cities is that very often they would build these defensive walls, and then on the other side of the wall, they would build these tenements or apartments. And some of them were multi-story. And so uh, what you have is Saul probably went into somebody's home, some, somebody's little tenement. They had a hole in it, and they were able to lower him down through this basket, and he was spirited away then to Jerusalem. So he heads back to Jerusalem, another 130 uh, miles back to Jerusalem. Um, it's not the first time, it's not the only time, let me say it this way, it's not the only time the Holy Spirit's going to reveal a plot to kill Saul or Paul that we're going to find out about in the book of Acts. In Acts 23, kind of a similar thing happens as he's going through some trials in Jerusalem. They wanted to kill him then too, but Paul is able to duck out of that and he ends up uh, going to Rome in chains, but he goes alive. But one of the things that you and I need to be clear on is, is that even Paul and all of us, we do have an expiration date, a physical expiration date. Probably not the cheeriest thing to talk about on Sunday morning, but you know we do have an expiration date. Paul eventually did die. About 30 years later, after his second imprisonment, he, he was executed just outside of Rome uh, because, again, because he was proclaiming the gospel and he was causing up a lot of what the Roman authorities saw was a lot of, a lot of dissension within the citizenry. And so 65, 66, maybe 67 AD, he's executed. And then verse 25, like I said, that, 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 that outer wall is where he's let down and, and he's able to go and, and live another day to be able to proclaim the gospel. There are times when you and I are called to stand firm 
and just take it from those who oppose us. Whatever it is that they're going to dish out to us. There are times when we're called by the Holy Spirit to do that. I can't tell you specifically how to discern that time. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. There are also times, however, when the Holy Spirit very clearly calls us to walk or run from opposition because it's, for, it's going to be our time to proclaim some other time and in some other venue and in some other context. This was one of those times where Paul is called to proclaim at some other time. In this case, he was called away, and he ended up becoming the most significant church planter in the history of the church. There's a guy that church historians, I think, love to talk about. His name is Polycarp. Some of you maybe have heard that name before. It's an interesting name. Anybody name their children Polycarp? No? Okay. Anyway, um, Polycarp was, uh, was a pastor. He was, um, he was the uh, bishop of the church at Smyrna. In other words, he was the lead pastor of the Christian church at Smyrna in the, in the mid-second century. And he was preaching and proclaiming the gospel, and he was upsetting the Roman authorities, something terrible. And so finally, in 156 AD, they came to get him to execute him. And and when the soldiers came to get him and to take him to the stake, the Romans would execute you. Um, They could behead you. They could crucify you. But they also could burn you at the stake. In this case, they were going to burn Polycarp at the stake. When they came to take him to the stake, Polycarp looked at the soldiers and said, why do you delay Come do what you will. I have confidence in the Christ who was nailed to the cross. In other words, it was his time to stand and just take whatever was given to him. And what he's saying to them is, what took you so long? Let's get on with this. Let's just go ahead and get on with this. And so they took him to the stake. And the Romans had the, uh, something called a slow burn and a fast burn okay, at the stake. They knew how to build the fires so that they could burn quickly or slowly when they were burning somebody at the stake. The fast burn was for people that they needed to execute, but were just kind of a minor annoyance. They weren't that mad at them, but they needed to execute them. They were really angry at Polycarp, and so they gave him the slow burn. And historians record that it took about 20 minutes for Polycarp to die. They built the fire so that he just cooked for about 20 minutes. He's alive for 20 minutes. And that whole time, you know what he's doing? He's proclaiming the gospel. He's preaching the resurrected Jesus to those people who put him on the stake and, and burned him. So Polycarp knew that that was his time. Now there is no perfect formula as to win is win. We, we, I, I can't give you a perfect formula. And, and, yet, and this is yet another reason for our reliance on the Holy Spirit and not some perfectly crafted list, list of, of Christian instructions. One of the challenges in, in church life and in the Christian life is that as human beings, it's not just true of Christians, it's just true of human beings. As human beings, we really want a list to follow. That's just the way we are. We want to be able to put things in its box where it belongs, and that's it. Uh, Robert Lane Green, who wrote a magnificent book called You Are What You Speak, and for uh, rhetoric nerds like me, I love this. I loved this book. I've read it a couple of times. It's a book about uh, re- rhetoric and rhetorical devices and entomology, word origins, and how we use language. And he talks about how, as human beings, we want our language to have one specific, for sure meaning that we can just fit into a box, and it never, it never varies, and it's never nuanced. And he says that's just not true. It's just that's just not the way language works. Well, all of life is even like that. And I would say even in many respects, the Christian life is like that too. The Bible speaks to many, many things, 
But we can't be sure of exactly how everything in the Bible is supposed to be applied until we, uh, applied until we know specifically your context. You see, I'm a pastor called to shepherd people. I'm called to counsel people in all kinds of situations. Situations where I know a lot, of, uh, I know a lot about the situation. I know a lot about the, the event, the experience. And, and sometimes I'm called to counsel in situations that I don't know anything about. But I'm, I'm your pastor and you, and you want to have some counsel from your shepherd, and so I get that. But the way I do that, and the way I think most pastors do this, is number one, we don't just come at you and say, well, here's what the Bible says. In every case, this is what it says. We come to you first, and we say, okay, tell me the context. Tell me your story. Those of you that have met with me one-on-one, you'll know that if it's the first time we're meeting together, the first thing I will ask you after, hi, how you doing, thanks for the coffee, is, what's your story? I want to hear your story. I want to know your context. I I, I want to understand that. So the first thing that we have to do is I want to understand the context with which we're going to apply God's word. Understand, you cannot apply rules or law without a context. You just really can't. Okay. The second thing we do is we study and draw from God's word. We look at your context. We see where scripture speaks to that. We also invite the Holy Spirit in through prayer. So we pray for guidance, and then we also help you see maybe different perspectives that you hadn't thought of, or maybe some blind spots potentially that you might have in your analysis or in your life. I will also tell you that many people come to pastors with an agenda already in mind, and they're just looking for the pastor to rubber stamp it. So don't be surprised if the pastor says something like, hmm, have you considered this? And it doesn't exactly line up with your agenda. But that's what we're called to do. There's going to be nuance. I would also, however, argue, and this is what I'm trying to get at ultimately here. I would argue that far too often in the 20th and 21st century American church, far too much expectation is put on pastors to actually run the lives of their parishioners. Pastor, tell me what to think. Have you studied it? No, just tell me what to think. Pastor, tell me what to do. Well, what's going on? Just tell me what to do. And not enough emphasis in the 21st century American church is put on the fact of the filling of the Holy Spirit and that we need to be guided by the Holy Spirit. We need to call for the Holy Spirit. We need to pray to God. We need to talk to God. And we need to listen to God. And we need to study the scriptures and allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures for us. That's how it's done. And I want to do that with you. And I want to do that in community. But we let me tell you something. Rely on the Holy Spirit before you rely on any man or woman. That, that is really, really important. Okay? Then verses 26 through 30. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among, the, among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Let me just stop there and explain who the Hellenists were. <coughs> Excuse me. I had this allergy thing the last couple of days. I'm battling it with my throat, so I'm sorry about that if that's bothering you. It's bothering me, too. Anyway, so a Hellenist. A Hellenist is an ethnic Jew who was born outside of Jerusalem or outside of Judea. So... The Hellenists were the Jews who came and got angry with Stephen and executed Stephen by stoning him. And who is also a Hellenist? 
Saul, yeah. Saul was born and raised in Tarsus, outside of, way outside of Jerusalem. And in fact, he was with the Hellenists at Stephen's stoning. Now he's contending against the Hellenists. These are, again, Jews born outside. And here you go. The Hellenists are interesting because not only do they speak ancient Hebrew and, and Aramaic, but they also speak Greek. So they're culturalized uh, Jews into the kind of the Greek culture as well. So very, very sophisticated, you might uh, say, about the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, the church... They brought Saul down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. They said, go hang out in in Tarsus for a little while until things calm down. So again, the Jews wanted to kill Saul, and the Christians don't believe that Saul's conversion is real. They think he's a Trojan horse. So enter Barnabas. Now Barnabas' name, the name Barnabas literally means son of encouragement. And if there was ever a guy who had the spiritual gift of encouragement, it was Barnabas. Barnabas is that silver lining guy. I mean, he's he's the guy, the storms are coming, and he's going, I see a silver lining. That's Barnabas. He can see the best in any situation. He had this gift, but he was also an advocate. he'll, He'll advocate whenever was necessary. He'd stand up for whatever was needed to have stood up for. And so he stood up for Saul. He took Saul by the hand, led him into the apostles, and said, he's converted. He's with us. He's a Christian now. I have witnessed his ministry already that he immediately got involved in. And so they said, okay. He starts ministering. The Hellenists get angry with him. They plot to kill him, so they send him off to Tarsus. Now, Saul is originally from this city of Tarsus, and it was a a terribly important ancient city. It was a strategic city in in terms of military and economy. Um, Paul, in Acts 21, he describes Tarsus as no obscure city. That is a rhetorical device known as understatement. In other words, when he says Tarsus is no obscure city, he's saying Tarsus is a major and important city. That's what he's actually saying in the midst of that. And and this city, Tarsus, was located on the major trans-empire Roman road. And so it, it it was in the middle of everything. Alexander the Great, 350 years earlier, spent a lot of time in Tarsus, either staging for military campaigns or resting and relaxing after military campaigns. Tarsus is apparently obviously a very romantic city because if you've ever heard of a guy named Mark Antony and Cleopatra, they met for the first time in Tarsus. So if you want a little romantic date, fly to Tarsus. Maybe things will happen there, okay? Um, and, And also Tarsus at this time, especially when Paul was growing up, was known to house many of the top flight philosophers in the world. And so it makes sense that one of the smartest rabbis to ever live, Saul of Tarsus, was born and raised in Tarsus. He swam in the waters of intellectualism from the time he was born until the time he came to Jerusalem to start persecuting uh, the church. Now, Saul's not mentioned again in the book of Acts until chapter 11, verse 25, several years later when Barnabas is told by the church in Jerusalem to go find Saul and and bring him back. And so then here's the last verse of this passage. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, so now you see the church is expanded outside of Jerusalem and, and, and Judea, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. I, I, I think this is important to see. You have the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They are joined at the hip 
existing side by side, and they are a part of each other. They're not two separate things that just coexist, but rather they are a part of each other. It's an important combination. So what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is understanding that God is God and we are not, and therefore humbly submitting to him and showing him the proper reverence, respect, and worship that God would deserve from us. That's the fear of the Lord. And we know Scripture says over and over and over in various places, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us this. What is the beginning of all wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and discernment? What's the beginning of that? The fear of the Lord. If you want wisdom, you want knowledge, you want discernment, you want understanding, the first thing you have to do is understand who God is, who you are, and submit yourself to him. That's when we start to have wisdom and discernment and understanding. And so this fear of the Lord, understanding who God is and submitting to him, then brings us the Holy Spirit, and we are filled by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comforts us. The Holy Spirit comforts us by filling us and guiding us, for sure, But the Holy Spirit also comforts us because, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for salvation. There's nothing that you and I can do to lose our salvation because it was all God's in the first place anyway. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We also know from what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that the Holy Spirit comes to us and illuminates Scripture for us, helps us to better understand God's Word. The Holy Spirit also reveals truth to us. And the Holy Spirit reminds us of the promise and hope that we have in God. And this promise and hope that we have in God is not a promise and hope that the world gives. It's, it's not like, you know, I, I hope I get the promotion. I, I, I hope I pass the class. I, 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 I hope she says yes when I ask her out. Or I hope, I hope he doesn't ask me out. It's not, it's not anything that, that, that can be guaranteed, the world's hope. But God's hope is guaranteed. It's the understanding that once we're in Christ, we're headed for Revelation 21 and 22. Someday, that's going to be where we're going to end up. So, here you go. Four things I want you to consider as a result of this passage today. Number one, everyone needs to advocate and everyone needs to disciple, just like Barnabas did. You can be a Barnabas to somebody. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's friends that you have coffee with. Uh, maybe it's a coworker at work. Everyone needs to be able to advocate and disciple. Barn- Barnabas advocated for Saul, and he discipled Saul. Uh, our, one of our founding pa- Tom, we have two founding pastors at Redemption Church. Tom Schrader, who has preached here on, on a number of occasions, he likes to say it this way. Even if you think of yourself as merely average, which we all know that no human being living in the United States would only ever think of themselves as average. We're all way above average, amen? Even if you only think of yourself as average, half of the people in the church need your help desperately. Do you understand that? You can help. You can disciple. You can advocate. Here's number two. Everyone needs an advocate, and everyone needs to be discipled just like Saul. Here's Saul, smart as can be. This is just, he's an amazing guy, and yet he needed an advocate, and he needed to be discipled by Barnabas. He needed 
to have Barnabas take him under his wing and help him. Everybody needs an advocate. Everybody needs to be discipled. Um, and, and remember that, that Paul, once he was discipled and advocated for, he became an advocate and a discipler. What did he do with his... There are many relationships that we read about in the New Testament where Paul was advocating and discipling. Probably the most important was with Timothy, right? I mean, he wrote Timothy a couple of letters and, and he advocated for Timothy. He was discipling Timothy. Um, again, Tom Schrader... Uh, Tom came to Christ in 1980 when he was 30 years old. He was a brand new disciple, um, and, and he, was, he, had been, he had been raised in the Catholic Church but really didn't know the gospel. And, and since his time leaving college until he was 30, he, just, he, he lived a life of, in his words, pure hell. Uh, he, they used to call him 31 flavors because his friends could bring him a sin, and he could find 31 different ways to commit that sin. And, and this is who Tom was, and then he's 30 and God saves him, and he saves him through the ministry of a guy named Larry Wright. Probably nobody in this room, maybe a couple people in this room, remember who Larry Wright was. Larry Wright, uh, who passed away 16 or 17 years ago, at one time was probably the greatest Bible teacher in all of Arizona. This guy was incredible. Somehow Tom started going to his Bible studies, and, and, and God used Larry to preach the gospel to Tom and save, and save Tom through that. And so the two of them became very close. They became like Paul and Timothy. And in fact, about a year into their relationship, whenever Larry would write Tom a note, he would write the note starting with these words, my dearest Timothy. That's the relationship that he saw with him. So everyone needs an advocate and a discipler as well. That leads to number three. It is the gospel that transforms us into communities of advocates and disciplers. So now we turn to Hebrews. There's this, I think, incredibly powerful passage in Hebrews chapter 10 where, where the, the author of Hebrews is, is talking about um, the, the, just the, how spinning, it, in order to make offerings for sin, sacrifices for sin, uh, you're really just spinning your wheels. That there's been one sacrifice made, it was Jesus on the cross, and it is finished. So why do we go on making sacrifices for our sin? Why do we go on paying penance? Why do we go on um, trying to do works to clean ourselves up when God has already made us clean through the finished work of Jesus on the cross? And he writes this, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This idea of constantly trying to clean us up to be presentable to God, it just doesn't work. We're made presentable by God through his son, through his sacrifice. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. I believe the, the author of Hebrews there is quoting uh, Psalm 110, Psalm 110 talks about the Messiah sitting down at the right foot of, of the Father and, and waiting for that time when he's going to come again. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I know this is hard to understand, and, and, and I wrestle with this probably daily, because I'm still living in a world of sin, and I'm still a sinner. I still sin. But God has already sanctified me through the finished work of Jesus. 
He looks at me and he sees Jesus' righteousness imputed to me. He looks at you and God sees Jesus' righteousness imputed to you. That's an amazing thing. I know we're wrestling with it. We're fighting the battles now, but that's how God sees us. We're his beloved children in Christ. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, and then he, and then he quotes the, the prophet Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It is finished. And so what he's saying, this is the gospel. The writer is saying, we're always trying to figure out a way to measure up to God, whether it's through the sacrifice of, of animals and killing animals or to, to doing penance or cleaning ourselves up or doing moral work or good deeds or whatever it is. Nothing is ever going to let us measure up. And it's only through this one sacrifice, God's Son, God's perfect and holy Son, going to the cross and then being raised from the dead. Are we forgiven of our sins and given this new life? And it's over. It is finished. Jesus says that at the cross. How is this not good news for us? And as we begin to understand now that we don't need a tablet anymore because God has written his law on our hearts, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're guided by his word, and we live in this community of faith now we can begin to experience that community of faith. It is the gospel that transforms us into this community of advocates and disciples. There's no more working ourselves into worthiness, just grace and redemption. And so now we understand we're blessed not to hoard that blessing, but to be a blessing. We're forgiven not to hoard that forgiveness, but to be, but to be able to forgive others. We are loved not to hoard that love, but to be able to turn that love outward and be able to love others. And that is where we receive and convey this power to, to be a community of empathy and a, and a community that truly cares for one another. We can begin to advocate for each other and disciple and encourage and love one another. And that leads us into this last thing to consider. Number four, embrace the ministry of one another's. Embrace the ministry of encouragement, of discipleship, of of advocacy. He continues, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This is a reference to how at the very center of the temple there was something called the Holy of Holies. And only one person was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and that was once a year, and that was to offer um, the sacrifice for uh, the sacrifice of atonement for the forgiveness of sins, and that was the chief priest. He was the only one allowed to go in there. And he's saying now, we can enter the holy presence of God anytime we want because we've been made clean and righteous by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. You don't have to worry about being that special person who gets to go in the holy of holies. You get to go right now. And by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who, is, who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, how to 
how to encourage each other and push each other and advocate each other for love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in, uh, and all the more as you see the day, that day that Jesus comes again, drawing near. Here you go, verses 19 through 22, really simple. You want the law or do you want the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus? Which one? Again, I don't think there's much of a decision to make there. I'll take the grace of Jesus every single time because I know that covers it all and it is finished. And then verses 23 through 25, he's saying when we confess our faith and we remember the hope that we have, that we're already saved and what our destination is, now we're empowered to do stuff. By the power of him who lives in us, we can go out and stir each other up and, and love each other and encourage each other and, and do good things. We can, we can champion each other. We can teach each other. We can press into each other. We can confront each other if we have to confront each other. And he says that takes the corporate gathering of the faith community. He says you need to get together face to face, flesh on flesh. Do not forsake the actual physical Gathering, and I know some of you are like, he didn't know anything about digital communication then. He's being led by the Holy Spirit, and the principle still applies even today. And I, I'm fine with digital communication. I use it all the time. I am the world's greatest texter, okay? And as for social media, I'm on Twitter. My wife's on Facebook. That's plenty for me, all right? But, but, and, and it's all fine. I'm just telling you, it is not a substitute for genuine community. We are more connected than we've ever been, but we don't really know what real community is. And real community only happens face to face. You may have a lot of friends on Facebook, but I don't know how many of them are going to show up at the hospital for you when you go to the hospital. You, you need to think about these things. The value of community, not just connection. As we wait together for him to come again, as we encourage each other and sharpen each other and love each other, in real, genuine community, which is hard. You can't just turn it off like you can your computer. I understand that. But this is where real community happens. It's also where you can work out differences much easier than through digital communication. David Medina, who's a professor of molecular biology at the University of Washington School of Medicine, writes this. The more sensory poor communication is, in other words, the more we use just screens to be able to communicate to each other, the more sensory poor it is, the more there isn't physiology and chemistry involved in our face-to-face -face communication, the more opportunity there is for mistakes, misunderstanding, and needless conflict. Have you ever been misunderstood through digital communication? Yeah, it's really easy. That's what he's saying. The more senses that we have involved in our communication, the better the communication is going to be. Uh, perhaps more to the point, Reed Shushart, who's a professor of communication at Wheaton, writes this. Listen to this. The church's true calling in a technological society is to do the slow, difficult work of embodying God's love one soul at a time. Embodied love is profoundly inconvenient, painful, and even excruciating. But the opposite of love is not hatred, it is efficiency. Here's what he's getting at there. He's saying, we can convince ourselves that it's more efficient to just communicate with everybody uh, digitally. And in many contexts, that is true, but not in all contexts. And especially not in contexts that matter the most. 
What he's saying is that when we are God's community living together, discipling and advocating each other, we need to have an embodied love. It needs to be incarnational. We need to be physically with each other. Uh, John Jeanette said this, before there was Facebook, we used to get our actual faces together and it was good. And so we need to be getting together to do this. And, and then look at this. He says, he says embodied love, he admits, is profoundly inconvenient. You got to get up and go somewhere and you got to put up with everybody's quirks. It's painful and it's even excruciating. Do you know where we get that word excruciating from? Anybody know? Does anybody know the Latin word for cross? It's crux. Here you go. In order to be the embodied love of God to others, we have to first go to the cross. We have to go to the cross. Saul went to the cross. Barnabas went to the cross. This is how they embodied their love for each other and for others. This is why the cross is so important. This is why the resurrection is so important because even at the cross, Jesus had the upper hand and he defeated it. So we need to go to the cross and be raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth and how you mold us and shape us, not only through your word, but also through your community. And so God, I would pray that, that we would be people that would chase after your heart on these matters, these very important matters, that, that, we, would, that we would not be lazy or lack the tenacity to pursue you through prayer and through the filling of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would do that for us. By the power of your resurrected Son, in the name of Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit, we come to you. Amen.